Exodus twenty sixteen. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And if you would please turn to Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds. And he brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Peter said, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in and they found her dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. God, you may be seated. So I didn't get to preach last week, so this is going to be about a two-hour sermon, so buckle up. Just kidding. Uh, I was like, okay, people are starting to get up. No, 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 I'm, I, it, won't be, it won't be two hours. Um, but I've had a long time to think about this particular sermon. Excited, excited to preach it. Um, I've, been, I've been loving this whole series on the Ten Commandments. It's something I've wanted to do for a long time because the Ten Commandments are not just a list of do's and don'ts. They lead, they lead the person who's not a believer to the feet of Jesus Christ because we realize I can't keep any of these commands. And they also, they also reveal for us the very nature of God himself. We've gone through all of them. We are on the last two. And today is this final one. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Jesus Christ summarized in this, do not lie. When it comes to lies, I always think about when me and Becca were first married. Now, give me a second here. We lived in a town called Wheaton, which is a suburb of Chicago. And in Wheaton, as we were driving through, maybe it wasn't actually Wheaton, maybe another town because they just blend into each other. There was a road called Lies. So me and Becca would always make these jokes about lies. And we would say that, you know, people, they build their whole lives, they live their whole lives on lies. People are married on lies. Their homes are built on lies. Um, (laughs) 
lying, lying is universally despised. Nobody thinks, lying, that's a good thing. I'm glad when people deceive me. I'm glad when they lead me to believe something different. But it would seem universally, universally excused. We do not like any other person's lies, and we do not excuse other people's lies, but we excuse our own. After all, it was just a white lie. Or if you're Obi-Wan Kenobi, it was the truth from a certain point of view. But God hates lies with the fires of hell. When I was in youth group, when I was much younger, we used to have this little song. It was, it was a bit irreverent. Um, but when we caught somebody in a lie, we'd sing this song. Revelation, Revelation, 21-8, 21-8. Liars go to hell, liars go to hell. Burn, burn, burn. But honestly, we are never more like God than when we tell, live, and love the truth. We are never more like the devil when we tell, live, and love lies. What is bearing false witness? Many of our translations will say, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. But what does that mean? Well, it encompasses a lot. It encompasses a whole lot. Matthew Henry broke it down into three um, into three parts, into three sections of what it means to bear false witness. First section is speaking falsely. These are straight up lies. These are not being confused or mistaken. You know the truth and you say something directly opposite. The best liars in history, they know how to mix in truth with lies to make it more palatable. Or they will say, well, that's my truth. That's very popular right now. Talking about your truth, being true to your truth. Well, if your truth is not the truth that's actually in reality, that is God's honest truth, you are living in lies. And I don't mean the road in Wheaton. It's also leading someone to believe something that is not true. You know for, full well of what person will take when you say we're certain words, and you don't care because you are trying to deceive. It's equivocating. It's taking apples and, and, and comparing them to oranges. Taking something you know isn't the same at all and trying to make that equal so someone will get off your back about something you know you're doing is wrong. It's any words or actions that have at their very heart the desire to deceive. It is also the second, the second portion here, speaking unjustly. Once again, Matthew Henry made, made these categories, which I think are just fantastic. Do you understand what you are talking about? Oftentimes, people will speak authoritatively. They will speak of things that they don't know about, and they simply don't care. That is also lying. I remember someone I worked with um, was uh, repeating things that they read in the one of those National Enquirer tabloid things. And they were telling me about a certain person and about how terrible they were. And I was like, is any of that, is any of that actually true? And her words to me, I always remember, she said this, they couldn't print it if it wasn't true. And of course, me being a snarky person, asked her if she thought Bat Boy was around, uh, you know, over in uh, Washington or something like that. And she stopped talking after that. Um, <laughs> said they couldn't print it if it wasn't true. Speaking with authorities on matters you know nothing about is a form of lying. Finally, we have false witness itself. False witness is a term you can see as legal and social aspects of lying. Legally in Israel, every matter, including capital crime, was established through the testimony of two or three witnesses. So up including uh, uh, a sin that would result in the person being executed by the state, it had to be established for, by two or three witnesses. 
So to lie as a witness, to bear false witness, included incredible penalties. That is why the first accuser got to throw the first stone. You say this is true, but do you believe it? Are you willing to throw the first stone? That is why in the story when Jesus, the woman caught in adultery, Jesus says, you who are without sin, cast the first stone. Because if you're going to cast the first stone at her, you better throw it at yourself too, accuser. Every matter was established by two or three witnesses. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, Jesus says to his followers that if two or three are gathered together in his name, there he is as well. This is often taken as the presence of Jesus with us, but is really talking about church discipline. Jesus is with you alone in your prayer closet. His authority is with us in the church when we, when we decide on church discipline. And every matter must be established through the testimony of two or three witnesses. Once again, as regard to church discipline, not the presence of Christ in a church meeting. In the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 19 says that if someone falsely accuses somebody, then what they intended for the, to do to that person, that should be done to them. In fact, I think we would have a lot less false accusations in America and our judicial system if we went by that. If it's proven false that you have lied on the stand, then you get the penalty for what you're trying to do to somebody else. There's also social evils included in, false, in being a false witness. This is slander. And we might say, oh, it's not slander if it's true. But here's the question. Are you willing to bet your life that it is true? Do you know that it is true? Would you swear before God because you already are that it is true? Would you bet their life on it? You are betting their good name on it. And when somebody is found out to be not, when it, when it's found out that what you were saying was slanderous, it wasn't true, how do you make that right? We can't. It's like when you have a kid and they put too much toothpaste on their toothbrush and you said, why, why do you got to do so much there? And they try to put it back into the, into the tube. You can't put the toothpaste back into the tube. I found this out the very, a very hard way when I first became a believer. And I remember I was talking trash about this gal behind her back. I was like in seventh grade. Um, but anyway, I was talking trash about her. And the Holy Spirit convicted me. And I'm like, I don't know what to do with this. So then I went to every person I talked trash about her. And I told them I was wrong. It was so wrong for me to do this. And then the Holy Spirit <laughs> made me. The Holy Spirit put on my heart. I had to go to her. And I had to tell her what I said. I had to tell her why I said it, which was out of envy or whatever. And I still burned in my memory. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my whole life, including running a marathon. It was nothing compared to that. Bearing false witness is slander. It is backbiting. This is where we say something nice to the person's face and we stab them in the back as soon as their back is turned. It's a false witness because it doesn't include all of the testimony. When we talk about other people, are we including the entire testimony of who they are? Maybe we should just not talk about people at all. The heart of it, when the heart of what we are saying is to tear them down and build ourselves up, that is bearing false witness. It is also tail-bearing. Is the story you're telling about somebody true or false? Does it even matter if it's not your story to tell? It's also about exaggerating offense. Sometimes, rarely, in church, you'll have two people who are at odds with each other, and they'll come to me individually, and they'll tell their side of the story. And it's amazing how much the, each person leaves out from the other person's story. 
And maybe they'll even include what, what their offense was towards the other person, but it'll be something very small. But the other person's response, oh, that's huge. How could they do such a thing to me? Pastor Jason, that's also lying. Listening to people's stories, listen to people's stories about the same event. Often they are very different. Often we leave out the part that is in dispute, the part that does not look us, make us look honorable. It's any attempt to pull someone down by lifting ourselves up. This was illustrated terribly in the life of a man named Absalom, who was the, king, who was the son of King David. Outside the gates, Absalom would stay there, and he would see people who were upset with the king. And he said, hey, if I was king, I'd give you justice. And that is how every terrible revolution that, that is steeped in the blood of the innocents ever starts. Is people go into areas and say, hey, if I was in charge, you would have it on easy street. You'd get justice. And they try to steal away another person's affections from where it truly belongs. And the, during the Bolshevik Revolution, there was people, they were basically communist evangelists who would go into areas, the Kulags. And they would go into a tavern. They'd find people who were very upset, just didn't, were not living a good life. And they would tell them, hey, it's not because of your bad decisions. It's because Bill, who has a farm, it's him. He's the problem. And they would go get a lynch mob and they'd lynch Bill. And now they have Bill's farm. But here's the problem. They don't know how to farm. And in one year, just in the Ukraine alone, over a million people died of starvation because nobody knows how to farm. It's like, Bruce, I could take your farm, but I don't know how to farm. So a lot of people are starving. If I, if I was to lie about you and things like that, that has a cost in human lives. Lying has a cost. Why does God hate lying? The Ten Commandments are not a list of do's and don'ts, not just a list of do's and don'ts. They aren't even only a mirror. However, that is the most important function for you and I to lead us to Christ. But here's another aspect of them. They reveal to us who God is. Do not lie because God never does. Hebrews 8, 6, it is impossible for God to lie. Do not lie because Jesus was born to testify to the truth, John 18, 37. Do not lie because Jesus is the truth. Do not bear false witness because that is the devil's language and you speak his native tongue when you lie. That's what Jesus said, that the devil's native language is lying. I remember when I was in high school, I took one semester of Spanish and I was terrible at it. And I thought to myself, if I'm ever going to learn a language, it can't be like this because I don't know any Spanish after this. I want to be as fluent in the devil's language as I am in Spanish. <laughs> when we lie, when we bear false witness, when we slander, when we do all these things, we speak his language. Lies destroy what should be preserved, and they preserve what should be destroyed. God hates lying because it is the exact opposite of who he is. When I was thinking, I was asked this morning, what, what's, the, what's the title of today's sermon? It's very hard for me not to uh, give, it a, uh, give it an 80s um, rock song title. Fleetwood Mac had a song called Little Lies, and the, and the chorus goes, Tell me lies, tell me sweet little lies. I'm like, that's weird. Most people don't like lies. They don't like to be lied to. However, 
whole lot of people, maybe most people in general society, they live on lies, and I don't mean the street in Wheaton. There are people who, ex- who lie to an extreme amount. In the poem, Child Roland to the Dark Tower Came, the English poet Robert Browning, his first stanza, said this, My first thought was he lied in every word. That hoary cripple with malicious eye, a sconch to watch the working of his lie on mine, and mouse scarce able to afford suppression of the glee that perched and scored its edge, at one more victim gained thereby. There are those who love to lie. They love to see people accept their lies and be destroyed by their lies. But most people, and many, and I could go to study after study, but most people lie at least once per day. And they think, well, at least I'm not like a compulsive liar, therefore I'm not a liar. But if all you lie is once per day or twice per day, 365 days a year, take that by whenever you first started talking, God sees that on your soul. I remember a coworker told me that she had to write down her lies, that she had a major problem with lying. She had to write them down so she could remember them. I remember, when I, I remember when I was, once again, much younger. I was picked up by the police. Me and my friends were doing things we should not have been doing. And I knew for a fact there was no earthly way we were getting out of the consequences of our actions. I remember telling myself as the police were questioning us, I remember telling myself, he knows. Of course he knows. We just did it two blocks away, and we're still on the same street. I gained nothing by lying, but I might gain something by the truth. So he comes to me, and he's like, what happened? I'm like, I don't know. um, Lies. Of course, probably one of some of the most destructive, dramatic lies that we have in American history is that of the Salem witch trials. Many people don't know this, but the prime accuser actually repented of her false accusations when she joined her church later on in life. What a shame, of course, her victims did not have the same privilege. Lying is one thing. Not telling lies is one thing. Living in the truth is another. Most lie by ignoring the truth or by omission. Jesus prayed over his over his disciples that his father would sanctify them in truth. And he said, your word is truth. God's word is truth. Outside of that, everything else is debatable. If it is lying with God's word, it is true. If it is not, it is not. Living in truth is a revolutionary act in an age of lying. In George Orwell's book, 1984, this takes this concept to the very extreme. Big Brother is not content with Wilson Smith just saying two plus two equals five. He has to believe it. And that is why probably the most chilling words at the end of any fictional story was written with the, at the very end of 1984 with he loved big brother how can you convince somebody of a lie so much that they truly believe it that they even though they know in their heart is wrong they will believe it they will fight for it they will die for it if you can convince a population to believe what they know in their heart is wrong you can make them do anything they've already compromised their very integrity on a fundamental level Seems crazy, right? Every day, though, you are being pressed to say two plus two equals five. To accept sweet lies and to shun hard truths. Every, every lie is aimed at the very first commandment that you would love, not big brother, but maybe something else, as opposed to God. When you are told 
forget about your lying eyes. If we tell you this is a woman, it's a woman. This is a man, this is a man. Or whatever other premiation we have. Don't believe, your lie, don't believe your lying eyes when your bank account goes to zero. Everything is good. Everything is fine. And it's not just so much you have to believe the lies. You have to speak the lies or there will be consequences to this. And it's only going to ramp up from here. The Bible is filled with people bearing false witness. In the book of Kings, we have Jezebel hiring false witnesses to testify that Naboth cursed God and the king. She did so to have him executed and for his land to be given to that king. At Christ's trial, there are false witnesses who only give a part of what Jesus says in order to condemn him. Today, we are looking at the very first major sin recorded for the early church in the book of Acts. It is the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And in this story, as we go into Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, we have the hypocrites. Number one. Number two, they were lying to the Holy Spirit. And three, the response of the church. Hypocrites. Now, before we get into um, the meat of chapter five here, let's look at the context. In Acts chapter one through four, things are going very well for the church. Judas has been replaced. The Holy Spirit has come down. Persecution can't touch them. In fact, it increases their joy. And everyone is of like spirit. Every, every one of them is saved and is called by God into their church. Many of them were selling their property and giving it to the, to the apostles to redistribute. But one man who is a Levite named Joseph, he goes above and beyond and he sells his property. He gives it to the disciples to give to those who are in need. And they give him the nickname Barnabas, sorry, Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. I don't know if you've ever been given a nickname. I have. And none of them were very flattering. I had a huge overbite when I was younger. This makes me laugh now, but it hurt my feelings a lot when I was younger. And, and kids would call me Chucky the Sabertooth Chipmunk. I wish somebody would have been like, Barnabas, son of encouragement. That would have been a lot better. And the people in the early church, they could see this. They, they, they could see something about him. And unfortunately, somebody had an envious eye towards him. And they decided, Ananias and Sapphira, that they wanted the honor of what uh, what Joseph was doing, but they didn't really want to live that way. Here's one thing I want to say about this portion of the book of Acts, because some people will take this out of context and say, yep, here is biblical evidence that the government should just seize everybody's assets and then just redistribute them. Here's what I want to make um, just from the text, easy observations. One, this was not forced. This was not forced. Neither force nor manipulation was used for this and nor was it implied this was something someone had to do. Number two, it was not even asked for. The apostles do not ask the people to sell their land and give the money to them. This is above and beyond anything in the law or anything in the apostles' teaching would require forgiving. Three, it was spontaneous. People just did this. Four, it was given from an authentic heart. And this is the most important some people, a lot of people, give to get. Maybe even they'll give into the offering on Sunday morning, believing that, okay, I'm putting this into, into God's bank, and God is going to give me an abundance of money back. And then when that doesn't happen, they think God's a liar, or they get upset. I remember I was a part of this one church, not my last church, no church anybody here knows of, um, and the pastor said on a Sunday morning that if you give $100 in the offering today, 
by Friday, you'll get $1,000. So there was this man, I know, right? Um, there's this man, he gave $100 in the offering. Then he shows up on Friday to the church office. And he tells them, hey, I gave $100 in the offering on Sunday. It's Friday. I haven't gotten $1,000. I'd like my money back. And the secretary told him, no. He took out a gun and she said, yes. <laughs> Many people, they give to get, but this was out of an authentic heart that was truly blessed in the giving. When I say, when I say that people give to get, the first thing I think of, once again, is money. But there's other things that people want when they give money, even to a church. They want control. Hey, pastor, that, that carpet better be burnt orange or no more tithe checks. Still others give to get respect and adulation, and that is where Ananias and Sapphira come in. They were giving out of, not of a, of a good heart, out of a generous heart, but they were giving out of an envious heart and a heart filled with greed. They thought that they could deceive others in the church to admiring them. They were just playing a role. We often talk about Ananias and Sapphira as hypocrites. The sin that's la- that, that is listed in here, and that is why I picked this situation in Scripture, is that of lying, lying to the Holy Spirit. But the title of hypocrite does apply. The charge against them is lying to the Holy Spirit. The word hypocrite applies to them too. We throw that word around a lot. And most of the time, we don't really mean what it actually means. Sometimes we think a hypocrite is somebody who has standards and they don't live up to those standards. That's not a hypocrite. A, um, that, would, that would be like, well, for instance, I'm a runner. I run many times during this week. Sometimes I go out for a run. I have an idea in my head of how far I want to run and I don't accomplish it. Um, many things can happen, injured or stomach issues or something like that, and I don't complete the run, that doesn't make me a hypocrite. You have standards according to God that you live up to, you strive towards. It doesn't make you a hypocrite to sin. Hypocrite, the, the word that's used in the Bible, used by Jesus Christ, hypocrites, it means to play a part in a play. All actors are hypocrites, but not, not all hypocrites act in plays. They take the bard's word serious when he said that all the world is a stage and they play act at being nice, at being honest, being generous, and even that of being a Christian. When these people are exposed, the real then comes through. Our two actors here in Acts chapter 5, they may not have been acting of being Christians, but they were acting of being generous. They see the honor people like Barnabas got And they want that, but they don't want to pay that full price. Their gift doesn't come from an honest heart. The woman's name, Sapphira, it means a precious gem. It's an Aramaic word that means sapphire. And it means beautiful. The man's name, Ananias, means God is gracious. They are wealthy. And and on outward appearance, people of great respect. But God looks to the heart and knows the thoughts. That his name, God is gracious. Many times people presume on God's grace. And it was a problem all the way early church. Paul wrote about it. He said, should we continue to sin so that grace may increase? And it's a problem we still deal with today. People are like, well, I can do this and God will forgive me. Or maybe you're caught in a pattern of sin and you think, I'll clean up my act one day. You know what the presumption in that is? That you might even have tomorrow. 
Peter confronts Ananias. And Ananias thought, maybe I can lie today. I can, come, I can come out with the truth later on. And he didn't have tomorrow. He didn't have the next se- second. Obedience is better than sacrifice. In the Old Testament, specifically in 1 Kings chapter 15, the very first king of Israel is a hypocrite. He is told to wait for the prophet, but he sacrifices anyway. And then another time, he's told to destroy everything, but he keeps all the wealth for himself. And he can't understand why the prophet's so upset with him. He's like, I sacrificed the best of it, and I gave that to God. And the prophet tells him, obedience is better than sacrifice. And Saul, the first king of Israel, he tells Samuel, the prophet, come out with me so people think everything's still cool. He wanted to play act as the righteous king, even though his integrity did not match it. The sin for these two is not that they did not give it all. Maybe you're thinking today we start off with this and you're like, okay, here comes Pastor Jason with the hard sell, (laughs) with offerings and tithes. Their sin was not that they didn't give it all. Peter, speaking from inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says so. The land was theirs. The money was theirs. They could do anything they wanted with it. They could give 1%. They could burn it, invest it in cryptocurrency. The one thing they could not do is they couldn't buy integrity with it. They lied and they tried to lie to the Holy Spirit. According to John Calvin, their sins extend beyond just lying. However, I would say that lying encapsulates these sins as well. He'd say that they had contempt for God, which is obvious is true. Sacrilegious defrauding, which is, by the way, absolutely nasty. We see in this one, it doesn't seem so bad. But we know what's really bad is when churches take advantage of people financially. That is, that hurts the very message of the cross. Perverse vanity and ambition, lack of faith, the corrupting of a good and holy order and hypocrisy. We are told in verse 2 that Sapphira, she knew of this plot. Verse uh, 1 and 2, but a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. What part does Sapphira have in this plot? She doesn't come up with it, but she is in full agreement with her husband. It says in verse 2, however, and with his wife's knowledge. You know the English word, our word, conscience. It comes from two words, con, meaning with, and science, knowledge, with knowledge. At the day of judgment, if we do not know Jesus Christ, if we do not have an advocate, our own conscience will tell the Lord, yes, they were warned, yes, they were told, and they did it anyway. That is here with Sapphira, against her, with her full knowledge She is with him. Now, I want to say something very briefly right here. Submission in marriage is wonderful. Submission in many areas, wonderful. Submission into sin is a perversion of submission. Never in your submission to the authorities around you, to your husband and wife, is sin permitted and holy and good. Like this last year, for instance, there's very many things and many people against their own conscience followed them because those in authority told them that they should do this. In fact, um, Hyla gave gave a great word to our teenagers last night that just because somebody in authority is telling you to do something, if it means to sin, you go the other way. You have courage. You have the courage to stand up and say, no, this isn't right. This isn't true. 
We look in this, maybe we're, we're tempted to think, well, Sapphira had no choice in there. Yes, she did. They were part of the community of believers. And what does Jesus say? If you have issue with somebody, go to them. And if they will not listen to you, take somebody with you. We forget about this in marriage sometimes. Then instead of just letting things fester or suffer quietly, have somebody come with you. Take it before the elders of the church. If the spouse still won't, you stay married, but you treat them like an outsider. Their hypocrisy is laid bare for all, but also the opportunity for repentance is there as well. With her full knowledge, she is a partner in this sin. They should have been a partner in righteousness the way God had intended. Martin Luther said to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. So that was verses 1, 2, verses 3 through 10. We see the consequences of lying to the Holy Spirit. Every sin is committed against God, both metaphorically and literally. Do you know what makes sin so terrible? It's that all sin is committed against God first. It's true in the sense that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So if you sin against your own body, you have sinned against God because God made your body. And he did not make it to indulge in sin. He made it for righteousness. If you sin against your neighbor, you have sinned against God, for he made them in his image. And whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done to him. Every one of the Ten Commandments has also been done directly against God. Numbers 1 through 3 are self-explanatory. Number 4, our Sabbath's rest. If, If we are finding ourselves troubled and we do not rest in Christ that we are not honoring him as our Sabbath's rest. In fact, like many, we just ignore it completely. So many, so many of the problems we see throughout our times is that people do not honor God our Father as their Father, as their Heavenly Father. In Acts chapter 3, Jesus, um, Peter, the apostle, tells the people there that they killed, they murdered the author of life. Hosea, what we've been going through on Sunday mornings, uses the metaphor of idolatry. God telling his people, when you fall to idolatry, another God, I take it as idolatry. And he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he will not be mocked. Will a man rob God? Malachi says, you bet he will. Now Ananias and Sapphira, they are not lying to men. They're not lying to church. the church. They're lying to the Holy Spirit himself. And people still try to lie to the Holy Spirit. People still lie to the Holy Spirit. Only once do we have a record in the book of Acts, and very rarely after that do people actually die for this. I said this before in almost every sermon series on sin, which is this, sin leads to more sin. You know why you lie? Because you don't believe that God is with you all the time. That the Holy Spirit truly lives inside of you. And when you lie, you are not lying to other people. You are lying to the Holy Spirit. As a pastor, people, people lie to me all the time. And they a lot of times don't, I mean, I don't know, maybe they know I know. And, you know, they're just trying to get through this. And, um, or maybe they think they're pulling one over on me. Sometimes I call it out. Sometimes I just let them, I give them enough rope to hang themselves. And I don't take it personally because I know they're not lying to me. They're lying to the Holy Spirit. There's this comedian talking about how he, he was, he's Catholic and he says that he hates going to confession because he doesn't enjoy, enjoy lying to a holy man. I don't take it personally. I don't get mad because why? Because they're not lying to me. They're lying to the Holy Spirit. Peter's accusation against 
Ananias is twofold. One is that Satan has filled his heart and that Ananias had conceived in his heart. Peter asked the, asked the man, Ananias, has Satan filled his heart? That's a good question. Can Satan fill your heart? Metaphorically, yes, but literally, no. Not if you are a child of, of God the Father. Because you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. The Holy Spirit does not share space. But the devil lies to you. And if you believe his lies, then you are, you are allowing him to fill your heart with, your, with his lies. Satan cannot indwell someone in which the Holy Spirit is there. The Holy Spirit does not share. And we see right here that Peter also says that he conceived in his own heart. So anytime somebody says, the devil made me do it, they are a liar. For the devil doesn't make anyone do anything. He tempts, he lies. It is the person who commits the action. Why do we lie? It has been reported by many studies, not least of which is a recent one by UWL professor Tony Morgan, that people lie at least twice a day. Other studies put that, much, that number much, much, much higher. In fact, I remember one study saying that the average person lies five times in a, in a conversation that lasts more than a half hour. That seems like a bit. <laughs> but why do people lie? I'm sure that there are a bunch of answers. Many people want to come through through so many different avenues. But for these two right here, you know why they lied? Envy. But I am sure people use each and every one of the big seven deadliest sins to lie. We lie when we are angry. When our pride gets in the way. We lie when we're greedy. We lie when we are lazy. We, I mean, I remember one time, and I bet everybody has experienced this too, especially if you work in retail, that the people who complain the most about being the busiest never are doing things. They're complaining about everyone else being lazy. And you're like, you took a two-hour lunch. We lie, we lie because of lust. In fact, that's becoming more and more of a problem. Is consent really given when the person's lied the entire time during the date? We lie from envy, of course, and nice and sapphire. We lie because of gluttony. We lie to ourselves mainly because of gluttony. No, I, I, only, I, only, had a, I only had a sandwich for lunch and some ho-hos and a donut, and a quart of ice cream. and uh, But those don't count. Those are snacks. It comes from an overflow of the heart, the mouse speaks. How does Ananias die? You know, I wonder what would have been on his death certificate. Perhaps a heart attack. Being caught in their lie with no escape. I don't really know. It might interest you to know that, that God snuffing them out is not exactly proof um, of their total hypocrisy, that they were never believers in the first place. In fact, earlier on in the book of Acts, leads us to believe that everybody in the church at this time is a genuine believer. 1 Corinthians 11.30 mentions, mentions that there are those who take communion in an unworthy manner and that they have fallen asleep. And that is a euphemism to say that they died, that God snuffed out their life. 1 John 5.17 mentions a sin that leads to death. Losing your life can be a form of godly discipline. It's very rare, and most of the time, it's uh, God allowing us to do what we want. And we find out its ends are destruction. You see in here that as soon as they die, they bury them. Let me explain that for you just a bit here. In those times, you didn't keep a dead body around for very long. They just, there wasn't ways of preserving it. There was disease to be worried about. 
they were not covering up what happened in the church that day. The wider community knew, the church knew. In fact, the next verse, verse, verse 11, says that fear gripped them and their community. People knew about this. I bring this up that they were, maybe they were burying the body, but they weren't burying the truth. Because if this happened today in a church, not even the people falling dead, and that would be kind of crazy. I mean, nobody here's name is Jim, right? No, Andrew. I'm like, Jim, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. He drops dead on the spot. But just church discipline, the knee-jerk reaction for many churches is to cover it up. This is one of the biggest problems in churches today. Instead of allowing the Holy Spirit, people are worried about their kingdoms. Now, if this happened in church, maybe, I mean, I would be worried, right? I'll be honest right here. People find out people drop dead in our service. Oh, no, that's the end of my ministry. It wasn't the end of God's work. In fact, the church thrives. That's my next point here. The church thrives here. They weren't covering up. They buried it. They, they dealt with this in the way that God wanted them to, which is open. Now, a lot of times repentance can be just between you and the person. The more public the sin, the more public the repentance has to be. I told you before, I mean, to my utter shame, I was talking trash about that gal. I was gossiping. So I had to go to every person that I gossiped her, to her about and explain, I'm the bad one. <laughs> and I had to go to her. As public as the sin is public, the repentance needs to be. Amen. They dealt with this out in the open. And that's my third point right here, which is just verse 11 right here, the church. This may be the first time the church is called the church in the book of Acts. The word here being ecclesia, which literally means to be called out, to be called out of the world, to be taken from the world. We don't like to mention that today. In fact, we are very worried about being exclusionary, but the very word church, church means to be exclusionary. It is a community of believers. It is not a club to belong to. First century church was an ecclesia, those called out of this world to be Christ's body. Peter will write in his epistle, for, this is the, for, for it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will, be, what will the outcome be for those who disobey the gospel of God? Peter had a vivid example in his mind. You notice when he's speaking to Ananias, he doesn't tell him, and you're going to die for it. He doesn't proclaim judgment on him. He doesn't even proclaim death on him. Ananias drops dead. I imagine the most surprised person in the room, other than Ananias, was probably Peter. What a powerful example to know that when judgment, when revival is coming, judgment happens, starts with the people of God first. There's a, that there is a cleansing that happens in God's people before revival starts. God judges his people first. Peter saw that himself. I can imagine the most surprised person in the room when this was going down was Peter. Was Peter. He knows that when God is about to move, you see a cleansing in the church. With all the scandals lately in the church at large, my hope is that God is ready to do something absolutely amazing and his church is getting ready. And that idol after idol starts falling down. We stop putting our trust in Christian rock stars and superstars in the scriptures. Kind of going off notes here, but I was just sharing with some friends the other day that it was all these like people that I looked up to when I was a high schooler in Christian rock music have come out as atheists or something else like that. 
And except, and except for John Cooper of Skillet, when he came out, I was like, oh, oh no, what's this going to be about? And he starts actually going the opposite way, sticking close to biblical Christianity. I was like, that's awesome. One of the things he had to say, we need to stop looking to these people as though they're gods. I'm like, amen, right? I'm up here on the platform, but I'm not above you. I'm a fellow sheep of the shepherd. And just because I say it doesn't make it true, it's true if it's in the scriptures. I think that is what God is doing in our nation. And I I am praying, I am hoping that that means revival is truly coming. As evangelicals, we are very anxious and excited for the idea of revival, and we should be. But I wonder if we would be as excited if we understood the price of revival. It's judgment of God's church first. J. Edwin Orr, the the, um, pastor and theologian, one of his last sermons was titled, Revival is like Judgment Day. God flushes out hypocrites, false prophets, and wolves first. This causes a great stir. And what we see in verse 11, great fear. Before COVID, I noticed this. I was talking with a friend the other day. When I, I listen to a lot of sermons. Friends, people I don't know, whatever. And I noticed there was a trend before COVID hit. And it was this. A lot of pastors wanted to preach about fear. And then COVID hits. Then all of a sudden, all these, all these sermons about fear just went, All of that totally missed the point that there is a fear that is good and holy and right. That when God's people start taking him for granted, when hypocrisy is not only tolerated but celebrated in churches, it is time for the fear of the Lord to come back. Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Unfortunately, most churches do not have a fear of God but a fear of man. They're more worried about entertaining the flock rather than feeding the flock. We live with lies because we fear what men will do to us. We don't fear what God will do to us because too many see him as a toothless old cat and not a roaring lion until it's too late. And God will not be mocked. This is not the end of the church in Acts. It's the beginning of the church in Acts. This would seem like the end of the church. Many talk about something... um, may talk about something that doesn't play well in the media. Can you imagine how bad this would play in the media? Pastor's rebuking a guy, drops dead. Wife comes in a little while later, rebukes her, she falls dead. I'd be thinking, well, that's the end of my ministry here. It's the end of my time here. The board is going to meet and uh, I'm out. Of course, our board wouldn't because they're awesome. But I'm just saying other churches... But this is only the beginning of God's work in the book of Acts because the gates of hell will not overcome. Would our worship team come up? We are at the time in our service for us to respond to the message. As As we start this, I think of Ananias and Sapphira and I wonder where they are today. It seems bad. It seems there's evidence that they went to hell. However, myself, David Gusick, and John MacArthur don't believe so. We do not know so. I do not know so. And I mentioned their names, so I'm not just alone in this. This is so early in the church that there are statements like all are used. It is possible for you and I to act in unworthy ways and for God not, for us not to lose our salvation. James Montgomery Boyce 
His commentary on this chapter says, True Christians do not lose their salvation by sinning. The punishment of Ananias and Sapphira, though extreme, was for this life only. Whatever the case is, once again, I do not know, and I'm not standing on any such truth, we see the names of Ananias and Sapphira played out in the rest of the book of Acts. Sapphira's name meant beautiful. And we see the beauty of God's work in the rest of the book of Acts. People are still coming to the church in the thousands. Sinners are being saved. Barnabas goes on to an incredible ministry. There's a man named Philip, and he meets with an Ethiopian eunuch because God plucks him from one end, goes to the next. Because it's just so beautiful, right? Because God is like, that's mine, and I want you to go to him. There's such beauty, but then there's also God's graciousness. Ananias means God is gracious. Aren't you glad of that? For we all know that we have acted in unworthy manners even as Christians. But that we can go to the throne of grace with confidence and receive mercy and grace because we have an advocate who is in heaven. So many are caught in sins and they don't know the way out. Maybe for you today it is lying or maybe it's something else. It is a habit of sin. Please do not think you have forever. You may not even have tomorrow. Get right with God today. Get right with God today. Even just in your pew, come up to the altar. You're stuck in a sin, in an addiction, in a habit of sin. Today is the day where you get freedom because that is what the Ten Commandments are about. How to live free as children of God instead of being enslaved to sin. Where, why are you in church today? Do you know God or are you playing? Living inside of a garage does not make you a car. Coming to church does not make you a Christian. If you do not, have a, if you do not believe firmly that if you died, you would be with him, you would be in heaven, today come to him. No longer, you don't have to play act anymore. You don't have to put on the mask. You can truly come to him. Take off the mask because while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. Two, stop lying. Live in the truth. Are you living a lie today? Live in the truth. As scary as it might be, you will find that is in the truth that you are set free. Three, pray for our church here. Faith Church. Verse 11, that God would grow us in boldness, in power, in truth. Pray for me that I might boldly proclaim the truth as well, because even as your pastor, I am faced every single week to cover over the truth or to reveal the truth. There are some things I know it's not going to play well for everybody. Pray for me that I might have boldness to live in the truth, to preach in the truth. Would you please stand as we... As we have our last song, our time of reflection upon the message today of Ananias and Sapphira, that for us, we have an opportunity to live in truth.